0: Thanks, Bill, <clears throat> especially for the reminder of uh, Anna's spotlights. I have to tell you that it makes me both proud and incredibly insecure. Um, <clears throat> at the same time, all the accolades and comments that, uh, that uh, you leave in the friendship book, um, uh, commending uh, the spotlights, but they have been been great, and I know Cheryl was a, a big part of that initially as well, and so that's been uh, awesome. been awesome. Um, Isn't it awesome just to be able to sing together and try to clap? Um, We're we're just not very good at that, I've realized. Um, It's, um, I don't know if we need lessons, I don't know if we need a little more rhythm, I I don't know what it is, but uh, we'll have to work on that. Well, um, those of you who've seen the title to my sermon, Change is an Inevitable Growth is Optional, may recognize that as a Familiar quote by uh, a former pastor and author and kind of leadership guru, John Maxwell. And, and basically, it just points to the fact that over the course of your life, there obviously are going to be many changes. It's going to happen, it's inevitable. You know, you'll go to different schools, you may change homes, you uh, may change schools or jobs, Uh, maybe even careers. You move from doing one thing to doing something completely different at some point, and not just for different employers. But there's lots of changes that can happen in our lives. It's inevitable. But just because there are these changes in life, it doesn't necessarily then mean that there is growth. When I think about my own life, I've had many changes. I look back at a picture just recently. I didn't look back. It kind of came up somehow 10 years ago. And I was considerably less gray then than I am now. So there have been changes in that way. But I also hope there's growth. I hope that I'm a little kinder than I was when I was, you know, in elementary and junior high school where I could, you know, kind of hang out to fit in with the cool kids and tease the ones that weren't so cool Um, I hope that I have a little less ego than I did when I was 20 or 50. Um, You know, that my life itself is marked by a little more love and joy and peace and patience. I remember commenting to Tina one time after a particularly challenging season in our lives. I'm just like, like, why did we have to experience that? Why did we have to go through that? I mean, wouldn't it have been great to land somewhere else and you know, have, you know, kind of avoid all of that? And I remember in her wisdom, she just said, yeah, but if we had, we wouldn't have learned what we needed to learn, and we wouldn't have grown through those experiences. <clears throat> and that's so true. How do we grow through the experiences of life? And as we've been studying the life of David, I think that this actually rings true in his own life. He has lived much life and experienced much change. But I think what is especially appealing about his life is ultimately his growth. It's not quick, it's not overnight, it's not instant, but slowly over time. I think this is the, the, maybe the 13th message in this series, and, uh, and we've covered a lot of ground. We've covered many, many years, because when we first met David, he was just a young shepherd boy, you know, with a sling and five stones. And today in, the study, in our study of the life of David, we arrive at a, another major turning point in his life, another significant change. And so it's in the context of change, I want us to explore, how do we grow? And so let's look at some of the change in David's life at this point. I want to first of all just point out that there was a change in David's role. Because as we look at the first five verses of chapter 5 of Second Samuel, and if you have your Bibles with you, I encourage you to, to just follow along. I'll note some things as we go. But we see there that the elders, the leaders of the tribes of Israel, they came to, um, to uh, David at his home at, in Hebron at the time. And they sit down with him and basically remind him of all the things that have changed in his life. They kind of review the past. And they remind him that at one time Saul was the king of Israel, but it was David who was actually the military leader. And so while Saul may have been the king, David was the one who went before them and in a sense was their savior. He was the one who led the military campaigns. It was David who would bring the soldiers safely home. And in verse 2... We read that, uh, the, the Lord had said to David, this was, uh, there's no explicit reference to this anywhere else in the Bible, or in, uh, previous to this, but, but it must have been something that w- expresses the understanding of God's call on David's life. And so this phrase probably became quite, quite familiar. You will shepherd my people Israel, David, and you will become their ruler. And this was a promise given to David many years earlier. And, and I don't want to jump too far ahead, but just the initial thought when I think of that right now is that can you imagine having heard those words, having been anointed by Samuel so many years earlier, and then for the next, you know, 10 plus years being chased by the one who was sort of the recognized king, but not the anointed one. What does that do to a person? to start questioning, well, is that real? Is that true? Can I believe your promise? It may be helpful just to trace a quick line through some of this this promise, because we can go back all the way to Genesis 12, when God first made the promise to Abraham. He says, I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. That promise given to Abraham is like over a thousand years previous to the life of David. And then Samuel picks up this promise, and in 1 Samuel 12, he reminds the people of Israel about the Lord's commitment to them. He says, for the sake of His great name, the Lord will not reject His people, because the Lord was pleased to make you His own. And so there's this sense that God is putting together His people, and He's given them leaders and shepherds and continuing to fulfill this promise that He made so long ago. And at first, when Saul was appointed king, but then he was rejected by God after his disobedience, you wonder, like, well, why was Saul even king? How is this going to continue to fulfill the promise of God? But then David or, or, or God asked Samuel to go and anoint David to be the king. Now, when you just think about that for a moment, you say, well, what's the big deal about that? The big deal is simply that it actually demonstrates that God is faithful to the promise that He originally made to Abraham. And the whole transition from Saul to David as king is a fulfillment of this promise. Now, not the ultimate fulfillment of the promise, but it's a continuation of that promise. What does knowing like, for, if, when you think about for David, what does knowing that God is faithful to his promise do for him? Uh, what does it do for us when we think that God is a faithful God, you know? When we, when we sing, uh, you know, the promises of God, and yes, you are, you're faithful and true, you keep your promises. What does it do for us when we believe that God will ultimately fulfill his promises to us? Fills us with what? Confidence. With hope. Time and a time again, uh, David has expressed his confidence in God. Why could he do that? Because he knew that God was faithfully could be trusted. Can you see how that would lead to growth in our own lives? That over time we can trace the faithfulness of God in our lives. That maybe even when we're in the midst of a challenging time and we don't know how it's going to work out, how things are going to sort out itself, we we. We don't see what God's at work, or we can't, we, we don't feel it. We don't, you know the song, Waymaker, Promise Keeper? I love that line there. Even when we don't see it, you're working. Even when we don't feel it, you're working. And so, when we don't see it, we don't feel it, but we can still declare that we trust in the promises of God. What does it do for us? Right? And so when we go through a challenging time and we come out the other side of it and time has passed and we can kind of look back in hindsight and we go, oh, okay, now I get it. Now I see it. Now I see what you've done. I hope that you can think back in your own life over events like that. Events that were difficult, events that brought change into your life, but it wasn't until you actually looked back and saw Ah. Oh, I did grow through that experience. I did mature through those challenges. Those were that was a in hindsight a relatively good but hard experience. Back to our text. You see when the when the leaders of the tribes came to David, they reminded him of God's promise to him. You will shepherd my people Israel. You will become their ruler. And again, it was a reminder to the call of God on David's life that he would be the ruler, the leader of the people of Israel, of God's people, and the people who ultimately would belong to God would then follow this king. And he was given this, I think, somewhat unique phrase that he would be the shepherd them, that you will shepherd my people. And we know, as the people of Israel did, that David was a shepherd in Bethlehem when he was just a small boy. And this fact has been stated so often before. But isn't it a unique term for a king or for a ruler to be also called a shepherd? Because what do we know of shepherd imagery is that a a shepherd is one who who protects, a shepherd is one who leads and cares for and provides for um, the people. And when David defeated Goliath, it was David himself who made a comparison that his killing of the giant was was really an extension of some of the training that he had as a shepherd where he killed the lion and the bear and he protected the sheep. And so David was this shepherd king who protected and saved the sheep from the dangers around them. When you hear this shepherd imagery and you hear of being saved and protected, does it sound like another king we know, another shepherd? Are you connecting the dots between this Old Testament narrative and the New Testament? I mean, is it any wonder that this shepherd boy, who would ultimately become the shepherd king, would write, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall lack nothing. He leads me to green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. For you see, God has promised a shepherd to his people, one who would protect and save his people. And we know that God is faithful to keep his good promises. So, all of this story of David continually points us to Jesus. Jesus, who's the great king. In fact, in in Matthew chapter 2, and verse 6, Matthew is quoting Micah the prophets, and he uses that exact phrase, he will shepherd my people. And so here's Jesus, the great king, the one who defeated the enemies of sin and death, who's won victory uh, over death on a cross, who stepped in and fought some of our spiritual battles. He was on the front lines. He's leading, and we follow. And so we, like the leaders of the tribes of Israel in Hebron that day, we can come and say of Jesus then, you are the one who has defeated our enemies and made us safe. And because of that, we trust you, we follow you, we surrender to you, we submit to you as king, we, we, we recognize you as Lord, and so we will accept the, your lordship in our lives. Friends, that is the posture for growth. You can't, you can't step into a relationship with Jesus and not recognize that we're then subject to Jesus. That, that, that where He leads, we follow, and what He says, we will do. And what He says we don't do, we don't do. It's pretty straightforward. But our posture of growth is when we recognize Jesus as King, and we surrender to that. Now, another change Uh, that we notice is not just the change in David's role from from fugitive, from, from shepherd, but to king. We notice in this passage also a change in David's location. And the narrator gives us some details that put together a timeline of some of the major changes in David's life. And so what we're uh, facing this morning is really a fairly dramatic turning point in our study of the life of David. Because up until now, it's all been about the rise of David. And now moving forward, uh, what we study will be in the context of the reign of David as king. And so here we have David finally not just anointed as king, but really inaugurated as king of all of Israel. He's recognized now by all the elders, it says. All the leaders have come together. And for all these years, he had been on the run from Saul, wondering if this this day was ever going to come to pass, and here it is. And the narrator even gives us the the, the details that at the age of 30, he had become king of Judah. That was the territory to the south, and he lived there in the city of Hebron, and he was already reigning in that part of Israel for seven and a half years. But now at the age of 37, he's not only king over the area of Judah, but all of Israel as well. And so David is smart. He recognized that strategically, he, he needs a more central place to rule and reign from, and Jerusalem was that city. And now he's king, we're told, for another 33 years. And so then we know what happens, right? At the age of 70, he dies. Sorry, that should have been a spoiler alert if you didn't want to know the end of the story, but we'll get there eventually. It's kind of like the movie Marley and Me. Have you guys seen that movie? It's fairly old now. But I remember, like, the first time you're watching that, you sort of, you're warmed up to this beautiful, cute dog, and then you look at each other. The dog isn't going to die, is it? You know, of course, it's Sorry if you haven't seen it, I just spoiled that too. Um, But yes, David also dies. But after giving this overview of David's life, the the narrator goes back and he adds some detail about this change in location. And we're reminded, we're just told that King David, his men, they march up to Jerusalem. And what was significant about that is that Jerusalem at that time was just considered to be You know, invincible, unassailable. There there was no way that they could take it. And it belonged to a people called the Jebusites, a people who had largely kept to themselves. They avoided some of the messy battles of some of the other nations and tribes that engaged in. And so they kind of were left alone and they kind of just kept out of everybody else's business. And so they just kind of existed. Now there's a lot of speculation by writers and commentators about what actually happened how uh, david and his men uh, got into this fortified city so easily um, and uh, even the verbal exchange that takes place there between uh, david and the jebusites and if you want to nerd out a little bit you know you might want to do some research uh, yourself Um, but where i kind of landed on this it, it just on the surface um, it just sounds like a little bit of smack talk to me. I don't know if you've noticed this, but it's almost like the Jebusites were so confident that they were safe in their little fortified city that they could say something like, well, even the blind and the lame can ward you off. And what's he saying? I mean, it's, it's kind of like you know, somebody challenging you to a game of one-on-one pickup basketball and saying, I could beat you with one arm tied behind my back. Right? I'm so confident that I can take you. And so they're just saying, I mean, th- you guys are, you're no threat to us. Now, it may be more than that, but what I think I take from this is just how matter-of-fact the writer says in verse 7, but David captured the fortress of Zion, which is now called the city of David. Just so matter-of-fact it happened. And all this buildup and the capture of the city of Jerusalem, it was so easy and reported so, matter of fact. And what I want us to notice, though, is in verse 10. And David became more and more powerful. Now, some of your translations, if you're following along in, in something um, uh, like the ESV, I think it is, uh, it says, David became greater and greater. And the reason given for this, for this growth, is in fact because the Lord God Almighty was with him. That God was with him, that we've been reminded of the Lord's presence with David numerous times already, and it helps us, in a sense, make sense of his life when we see his place in the purposes of God. Eugene Peterson, in his book Leap Over a Wall, we've been referring to that numerous times, um, says that another way to translate the Hebrew phrase, this phrase, more and more powerful or greater and greater, is that David proceeded from that moment with what he calls a longer stride and a larger embrace. A longer stride and a larger embrace. Just think about that for a second. And he goes on then to comment about the radical change in David's life at this point and suggests that the phrase greater and greater, in fact, signals David's maturity or his growth. You see, sometimes change in our lives can have a negative effect. We don't like change. Uh, like the old saying goes, the only person who likes change is a wet, bi- wet baby. And so we become somewhat change-averse. We, um, we might live in the past. We, we refuse to sort of grow up. And like I said at the outset, change is inevitable. It's going to happen, but growth is optional. And here's what Peterson is getting at when he writes, but change can also be a catalyst for growth. It can stimulate developing, deepening, lengthening, enlarging. Our lives become more, not less. And that's what the narrator calls attention to in David at this moment. Not David embittered by the long hostility of Saul. Not David narrowed into an obsessive paranoia against the Philistines. Not David reduced to a compulsive regard for his own interests. Not David lazily living off the reputation of his youthful achievements. I like that because it's like, you know... He did something pretty significant when he was a teenager. He killed a giant. He could have been living in the past and just reminding people of that all the time. But he says, Peterson goes on, he says, No, rather all of that conflict and hostility, all of those blessings and wonders, all that hate and love metabolized into a holy life, a life robust in God and prayer and obedience. And so he lengthened his stride. He enlarged his embrace. Who he was before God was changing. And when we consider our lives, and specifically our life in Christ, could we say that we've grown? That we've matured? Not just that maybe our hair is a little more gray than it was ten years earlier but that we as a person, who we are, the Spirit of God at work in our lives, have we in a sense become greater and greater? Have we gotten a longer stride and a larger embrace? Are we more hospitable? Are we open to people that are different than us? Are we more loving and kind than we have been? See, I think sometimes when we look at our lives in the context of faith, we, we often just look at the here and now. We look at kind of today or kind of the immediate time frame. And we might only be focused on, on some of the changes that are taking place. Um, but what is, you know, like kind of focusing, like what's t- different today than yesterday? And you might think, well, things are kind of the same. And, and just as a kind of as a side note, when, I'm, when I think about Some of you, especially the younger kids that I haven't seen since like pre-COVID, it's just like, who are you? Like there's just this dramatic physical change that takes place in that time. Most of us haven't changed that much in this time. But have we matured? Have we grown? Are we deeper in our relationship with Jesus? Are there things that we incorporated into our lives during COVID when when everything else was stripped away that allowed us to deepen our walk with Jesus? Because growth takes place over time. It's not instant. Now, there are day-to-day experiences that happen to us, but growth and maturity takes place over time, and we're not always aware of it in the moment. Let me just try to illustrate it this way. Um, just recently, Tina and I, we were on some vacation. We got away to Kelowna, and we decided that we would uh, rent some bikes and go for a ride on the Kettle Valley Rail Trail. Uh, some of you are nodding your heads already. You've been there. You know what I'm talking about. For those of you who haven't, it's basically a rail line that was was constructed, um, I think, in the late 1800s, early 1900s, um, and uh, uh, kind of almost goes across the top of this mountain, and the section that we were doing was the Myra Canyon. And I didn't really know what to expect, um, but when you think canyon, think steep drop offs. And we started riding our bikes, and I have to tell you, I wasn't sure what to expect, and I, I, it was a little unsettling at first because you want to look ahead and you want to look around at these amazing vistas. Um, but there's steep drop-offs. And on more than one occasion, I had this thought go through my head. If I kind of quickly have to react to something or veer off, I'm going to fall to my death. I, I'm not kidding you. It was that steep. It was like, okay, I can't look there. I got to kind of look, look ahead. And so you're very focused on just what's in front of you when you're riding this. And uh, and there's, it's 12 kilometers long, and so we go all the way to one end. We take a little break. We're like, okay, that was really fast because all we did was focused on what was right in front of us. Let's take our time now going back. We had rented the bikes for like four hours. And so we stopped at every one of the 18 trestles that kind of connect this rail line. Uh, we stopped in the front of the tunnels. You take the pictures. There's a number of incredible spots where they have benches and these incredible views. And when you're up there, and now you take a panorama, you're like, Oh, way on the other side of the canyon, I think I see the line. Oh, yeah, there's a trestle. And you start to see it from a whole different perspective. And I think that's exactly what our own journeys are like. Because when we look back and we see where we've come in and where we're going, it does give us that new perspective. And so when we take a panoramic view of our life, it's a little bit like that too. And suddenly, we, we see the beauty of our lives lived with God. We start to notice not just the change in our lives, those isolated events, but ultimately the growth and the maturity that has come because of that. I, I've mentioned in the past the, 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 um, the process of writing your own narrative, to be able to look back over the course of your life and and highlight those events, just all of the events, and then you can also separate them and say, that was a really traumatic experience. That was a difficult one. Oh, here was a really positive one. This was really good. But suddenly you start to see God's story has been woven into your life for all of eternity. So why wouldn't it start when you're one or two or five or 12? And those experiences that we experience in life impact us, and form us, and shape us. Well, let's just move on to one last change, and that's in David's military strategy. Now, maybe I'm making a little too much of this or forcing this kind of into the theme that I've tried to to navigate here for us about change, but the last nine verses in chapter 5 provide for us the narrative of two military battles against an old foe. The Philistines show up again. You remember uh, the giant uh, Goliath was a Philistine. And so David here in this context uses two different strategies. But what I want to highlight is why he used two different strategies. Now it's pretty obvious what happens. The Philistines hear that David has been anointed king over Israel. And so they set out to look for him. Because to the Philistines, David had become their nemesis. He was responsible for numerous victories over them. And so David becoming king of Israel was a real problem for the Philistines. And they're not going to mess around this time. And so it's written that they went up in full force to search for him. And it sounds like the entire Philistine army is now on the hunt for David. You think about it. He's like, oh, good grief. Here we go again. Again. I've just spent the last 10 plus years of my life running from Saul and now there's an army that's coming after me. They're intent on taking my life. And so as the Philistine army gathers in the valley of Rephaim, which is just kind of southwest of Jerusalem, David sees this as a threat ultimately to him and his people. And so what I want us to notice is what does he do when he hears about this threat? when he hears about this enemy, when he hears about this challenge that's facing him. And I suspect that he does hear probably what he has done many times in his life already, that this was a well-established pattern in his life. This was a routine in the way that he responded to, to life events. You might even say he had a bit of a rule of life. This is what he did. And the first thing we know is that David got away. He just got away by himself. He went down to the stronghold, the text says. Now, that may have been a safe place in the king's palace that was established and hidden away from kind of obvious sight. Or maybe even escaped back to some of his previous places of refuge. Some of those caves of Adalim that he had been in before. He went, you know, when I need to kind of collect my thoughts, when I need to come spend time with God, this is where I go. And so he went away. And I want to just say to you that going away and finding a quiet place, finding some silence and solitude is a absolutely critical practice for believers. At any time, every day, you just start to develop that rhythm and recognize that over time how beneficial that is for your walk with Jesus. One of the things that we basically require, it's, uh, I don't think we've written it into any contracts, but for all of our staff, we need to spend a silent day a month in prayer that just we get away with Jesus, and for accountability, we actually tend to do it all together. We go to a retreat uh, center for the day, and we meet together at the beginning. Then we're completely uh, apart. We may even eat lunch together, but actually do that all in silence. That's an incredible discipline right there. And then we meet together, and we debrief. What? How did God meet you today? And um, and I think it's critical for us as a staff to pull away and spend that time. Because we always say we'll do that. We always think we should do that. But we don't do that. Maybe you want to figure out if you can incorporate something like that. Anne, who's our director of spiritual formation, she pushes this all the time and gives leadership to some of this. And she has just she's coming back today. I see her family here without ad, because I know she's coming home today. She spent the entire last week on a silent retreat just to pull away... And be with God. And, um, and I know that, like, even a text that I got from her this morning, she just talked about, you know, it's just been an incredibly healing week. Look forward to sharing that. And I look forward to hearing that. But whether it's 15 minutes in a day, or whether it's a, a, an hour a day, or a day a month, or a week, a year, or whatever you could build into your life to recognize the importance of getting away by yourself. And can I just throw a little plug in here for Camp Caroline right now? Um, I was there on Friday for some meetings. And, uh, um, you know, they're sending these getaways with a purpose, and it's completely different, and it's kind of kind of sad to be at camp when it would normally be, like, just bursting with activity. But there was also a beauty in the stillness and the peace. And just walking across, like, there's 320, I think, acres of just incredible uh, landscape and trails. You could go there for a week and walk every trail and probably not exhaust them all. But I would encourage you, whether it's a family or maybe you're a couple that just needs a break, go away there. Having these getaways from Wednesday to Sunday or Friday to Sunday, I promise you, you want, it's like an all-inclusive, like all the meals are provided. Yeah, you got to bring your own sleeping bag or whatever, but but just go and enjoy some time away. Anyways, David when he got away, it wasn't just for the silence. He prayed. And we discover that what David did there in the stronghold, the first thing that he did was pray, and he turned to the Lord and inquired of him. I like that word, he inquired of him, because he comes right out and asks God, God, should I attack the Philistines? And then, I like this too, he doesn't just ask for direction. He says, and if I do, Lord, like, and if I do go and attack them, will you deliver them into my hands? So he's asking him for direction and for a promise. And asking God's questions in prayer, I think, is crucial. It's, it's even the pattern of the Psalms when you think of David. How long, O Lord? Will you forget me forever? Do any of us ever feel like that? But that's an honest prayer. It's it's okay to ask God these questions, to inquire of Him, asking Him for direction. Are you facing some uncertainty at school? You're facing a personal challenge in your life, in a relationship, whatever. You can just say, God, what do you want me to do? Where should I go? And God, will you help me? God, I'm looking for direction and promise. And after David prays, he listened and then he heard because he wouldn't have heard if he hadn't listened and he got his answers because the lord replied it says to david yes go ahead in other words go ahead and attack them and then he says i will certainly hand them over to you well again the confidence that that must have given to david just said okay i've inquired of the lord he's i've listened to him i've heard this and so um He gets exactly what he asked for. And then he obeyed. And that's a critical step. Because it's one thing to ask of the Lord and then to hear from the Lord. But it's another thing to obey. Because sometimes we don't like the answer. Right? Have you ever done this? You're praying for direction. You're like, but I don't want to do that. Can I have another answer, please? And you start to negotiate. You start to justify. But... David did exactly what God directed him to do there. And not surprisingly, we read that there he defeated them. And there was apparently a mountain. And it sounds like maybe David's men went up onto this mountain. And then they rushed onto this valley where we already know the Philistines had gathered. And he gave them victory in that battle. And so David then remembers. (laughs) Because... He made sure to remember God's work by naming that mountain uh, Baal-perazim, which simply means bursting forth. And it was like his army burst forth and God gave him the victory, and so he remembered it. Do we go back and remember God's faithfulness in our lives? You know, you read the Old Testament through, and one of the commands you're going to hear most often is, remember, remember, remember. I think that's an encouragement to all of us to look back on our own lives and remember God's faithfulness, that he is at work in his life. And of course, David triumphed, gave him the victory. and so symbolic that, you know, the Philistines had idols that they trusted on. Well, they, you know, their idols were no match for God. And so they just run away and they drop their idols and David and his men carry them away. I like the imagery of that. And in verse 22... This didn't just happen once, it was once more the Philistines. And once more, David did exactly this. He got away, he prayed, he listened and heard. This time, God actually gave him a different strategy. He implemented that, and again, there was victory. You see, when we routinely practice what David did here, I believe that it's part of how God forms and shapes us, how he leads us to growth and maturity over time. Friends, I, 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 I thought about sharing this this morning and then I was like, ah, do I or do I not? Because I, I really want to be careful to not make this sound like it's, it's uh, you know, looking for pity or, or um, you know, that you're like somehow worried that, man, I'm just I'm about to lose it or something like this. But I want to tell you right now, it's just a heavy time for me. I think our whole staff feel this right now. It just, there's a sense of, there's just so many things that have to fall into place. You know, we, we have staffing needs, which is a great problem to have, but but, but we, we have some significant staffing needs to fill, ideally before September. We're only six weeks away from that. We have, we have uh, you know, other things that we have to sort out. Some of you know that our facility manager, Barry, passed away in April, and we're trying to sort out, okay, so what does that look like for our facility management stuff to go forward? There, there's, you know some of the pastoral care needs, some of the things that that you guys are carrying and you share it with us and it's a privilege to carry that with you because that's what we want to do. But there's some really heavy stuff that people are dealing with. And so when you feel like there's so much against you and you probably have it in your own life, what are you feeling challenged by? And I was reminded this week and I don't think by accident at all of an event in Second Chronicles 20 where King Jeho- Jehoshaphat, he's king of Judah, and he's under attack, military attack again. And, and he just acknowledges, God, we have no power. This army that's coming against us is too vast. And then I love what he prays. He says, we don't know what to do. There's a humility in there, isn't it? We don't know what to do. But our eyes are on you. We don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. Friends, that's where I find myself today. Maybe you find yourself in a similar place. When you don't know what to do, like David, you put your eyes on Jesus. And we look forward to all of what Jesus has in store for us. And I could get into so much more, the, 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 the message here of the new Jerusalem, the, the city of Jesus, where not only was it this, this um, there's a new and better Jerusalem coming. There's a new and better king, and it's King Jesus. And so in the meantime, we pray your kingdom come. But we live out our faith every day where we walk humbly before God, where we come before Him and say, God, what do we do? Should we do this or should we do that? And He gives us direction, and when we get that direction, we do what He says for us to do. Let's pray together. Father, thank You for these words, and I pray, Father, that in some way You would take my words and, and, and make sure that they're not just my words, but they're Your words. And that, that, that you're speaking into the lives of people. I'm often amazed at, at how on a Sunday morning when you speak uh, like this, that, that you say things to people that I didn't even say. That your spirit just offers encouragement, offers hope, offers challenge. That you know exactly what we need in the moment and you provide that for us. And so, Father, we just come before you today. We want to worship you we recognize that King Jesus is Lord and we surrender to him. We walk in faith and obedience and we don't expect things to just change overnight, but we know that it's the long and faithful obedience in the same direction. And when we can look back over our lives, we see your hand at work through the good and through the bad. And we just offer you praise And we thank you for your promises. We thank you for your faithfulness. And we know that there's so much in your word that just comes to life. And so I pray, Father, that we would take away exactly what we need to take away today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.